Then put your little hand in mine. There ain't no hill or mountain we can't climb. And this is when I reach over and smash the clock. <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to the never-ending time loop month. I have subjected Brian and you listeners to the gauntlet by forcing us all to do just one more loop of this time loop month, with which should have been just February 2021, but has bled well into March. But I'm excited. I was looking forward to seeing this movie, and I guess we'll see at the end of this episode whether the loop finally ends here in episode 26 of The Goods, a film podcast. We hope you enjoyed the brief respite in the form of our 25th anniversary bonus presentation. Looking backward and looking forward and just espousing our views on what has led us to making this podcast for you here. Indeed. So listeners will recall, we watched four time loop movies in February and then took our, our break. As Brian said, as we did a retrospective ep and now our fifth time loop episode edge of tomorrow, 2014 action movie directed by Doug Lyman I think that's how you pronounce it. L-I-M-A-N. I'm not 100% sure. Starring Tom Cruise as William Cage and Emily Blunt as Rita Vrataski. And there's a 100% chance that I mispronounce or mistake at least one of these names in the course of this ensuing episode. Cruise is too close to Cage and Vrataski is too much of a mouthful. I'm going to mess it up for sure. I don't know. I guess we'll see. You just remember that she's got the same name as the girl in Groundhog Day. So we have another Rita here. Ah, I didn't make that connection. I wonder if that was intentional. Edge of Tomorrow came out in 2014, and it's one of the biggest budget, most blockbuster time loop movies that I'm aware of, at least. Um, and I thought it would be fun to take a look at something that wasn't an indie movie, something that wasn't focused so much on the interpersonal drama and was more about just getting the blood pumping, get some spectacle, some summer blockbuster. And that's where Edge of Tomorrow came in. Um, in the spirit of Time Loop Month, I think we can start by talking about our Time Loop question of the week. Sounds good. So I think we're actually going to go through two questions today, Brian. One of them you pitched to me and one of them I pitched to you. So we'll start with the one that I wanted to ask you and one that I had kind of my own ideas on. And that is, what is a twist on time looping that you haven't seen and that you aren't aware of existing that you would like to see? Or some element of a story that you think would be kind of fascinating? I've thought of a couple things that you don't see very much. One would be if they used a longer period of time. Most of these movies, it's just a day. Or even if they use some alternate method, like dying or getting hit in the face by a 2x4, it usually happens pretty quickly. Like, it, it always seems like it's still happening within that 24-hour framework. So maybe work with a bigger chunk of time. 
Oh, that's interesting. You're right. It's always been the order of magnitude of days. There was one I saw that was minutes. Source code was minutes, but we haven't seen anything longer than that. Like I could see a version where you relive the same year over and over again. And it's almost like a New Year's Day themed or New Year's Eve themed time loop movie or something. Mm -hmm. What are some twists you've been thinking of? So I have a couple. One is... This is just kind of like imagining myself in a time loop. I don't know how you use this in a story, but what if there was something, whether it's like a USB stick or some like quantum cloud drive or something where you can preserve information between loops? That would be pretty appealing if you were living the loop yourself because then you could create and preserve things well, uh, digital things, maybe not physical things, although you could extend it to like there's some space that also loops with you or something, but some way that it's more than just a person who loops, that there's like something else preserved as part of the state. I don't know what story fits around this idea, but I would kind of want to see something like that. I thought that would be intriguing. Like maybe you have a journal of 10,000 years of looping the same day over and over again or something. I don't know. I agree. In Majora's Mask, your items loop with you. So I don't know what the narrative equivalent of that would be, but you don't have to do the temples over again. You you still have your your bomb chews and what have you. Mm, okay. That's how you can make progress there. That makes sense. Another kind of twist idea that I had was I kind of touched on this in the Palm Springs episode, this idea that not just one or two or three people looping over and over again, but like major portions of the population, if not the whole world, looping over and over again. Like imagine instead of just, you know, Bill Murray or Tom Cruise waking up, everybody woke up and was realized that it was a time loop and started to discover that things reset at the end of the day or at the end of the time period, whatever the trigger is, and like what that would look like on a sociological level as opposed to just an individual personal level. Like I could see it being sort of like the purge where the people just go crazy and live out their greatest indulgences or whatever. I haven't seen the purge, so I don't know exactly what happens in it, but the gist that people get to be violent and, and wild and live without consequence in mass could be like scary almost. I don't know, but then maybe there's also other things that people figure out how to do positively or something. I think that could be really interesting and would probably get greenlit by a studio. I'm imagining like, religious movements would form and stuff different societies except what would be interesting about that would they would have to find each other every day right and so there'd be like yeah teams but there'd be that scramble at the start of every day to affiliate because they'd start out in different places the thing that re-brought this idea to my attention is i've been watching re-watching the hbo show from the mid 2010s called the Leftovers, which is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. It's just a masterpiece. And it deals with how the world responds to 
a supernatural tragic event, which is the sudden disappearance of 2% of the population. And it's a little different because it's not quite as uh, gimmicky in the structure of the way that the people live. But like a lot of the stuff that I'm kind of talking about happens in there. And in fact, a key point is, as you mentioned, there's like a religious group that is basically a cult that builds around what they call the sudden departure. And they become kind of the main antagonists of the series as this sort of cult that is obsessed with this event that happened. I don't know. I just think you can take some of the things that The Leftovers does, but extend it to time loops. And I would really want to see that. I think that would be really fun. The last one that I wanted to pitch to you, I think I might have sent you this idea in an IM. And to me, this would like really play with some of the things that we've experienced during this pandemic is a loop where the trigger for restarting it is physical contact with someone. So like if you touch someone skin to skin, then you go back to a specific time period. And I'm imagining this in like a really low key indie vibe, not like a blockbuster vibe, but I feel like you could really dig into some of the alienation aspects of it (laughs) because it really is the more that we've watched these, the more that we've seen over and over that there isn't like these people in these time loops feel distant from the rest of the world in a psychological way that I think is very relevant during this pandemic. Yeah, I'd have a long loop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe a couple weeks worth until I brush fingers with a cashier. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that if uh, that is not your ideal living situation. <laughs> um, okay, one, one last thing that I really want to see explored, and this is something that's come up in probably every episode we've done so far. I feel like there's not enough weight given to returning from the time loop like the way that that would impact someone psychologically so i want to see a pseudo groundhog day sequel probably not actually the universe of groundhog day but imagine basically groundhog day ending in the first i don't know first 15 or 20 minutes of the movie and the rest of the movie is him dealing with the fact that he's not in a time loop anymore and he does things have consequences and people and memories persist and trying to recope with that because I feel like there's some fertile psychological territory to probe with that. Yeah, that would be interesting. There's an Arabian Nights TV movie that I saw when I was a kid where one of the stories is about this homeless guy, basically a beggar on the Arabian street. And there's like a prankster prince who has the beggar abducted in the night. And when he wakes up, he's in the palace and everyone tells him that he is the Sultan and always has been the Sultan. And like his whole life up to this point has been a dream. And so everybody is bowing to him and he's super rich. And so now he's got to adapt to this being his life. And then he spends a while in this new reality for him. And then the prankster has him taken out in the night and dumped back into the street again. Like the Sultan reality was a dream. Oh, man. And just the effect of that destroying somebody's psyche. I guess, luckily, 
if you're hoping for comeuppance, the crazy guy ends up stabbing the prankster prince, like Shakespeare style, through a curtain. That's a really cruel prank to have played. But certainly getting used to one new set of reality laws and then having them suddenly disappear would be shocking to the system. And I think that will be relevant to our discussion of our movie today. So those were kind of my thoughts, uh, things that I want to see made. Um, Brian, you had a a question as well for, for Time Loop Month. Right. So as we're recording here, it's March 10th. And one year ago today, things were starting to lock down. I remember especially on uh, March 11th was when they announced uh, Trump came on the TV and said no travel between the U.S. and Europe, which seemed very cinematic to me, like something you would see in a zombie movie or something. And then like March 12th, you know, I was driving to work and then they said, hey, don't come in. And I turned around and went back home again. So we've lived under this lockdown for a year, and I was wondering if you were to do this year over again, maybe once, maybe many times, what would you do differently from the year we've just lived? Oh, man. That's a question that cuts deep and perhaps a bit personal. So I think that if I knew the time scale of what the lockdown would be from the start, I would have done things a little bit differently. I think I would have not burned out on like video chats with friends. Cause at the beginning for me, it was kind of liberating. Like, I don't know, I could just video chat with anyone, anytime. I don't need to go hang out with them. But then that turned into, I can video chat with anyone at any time. I don't want to do that. That's all I do during the, the work day. I would probably like try to, I don't know, come up with a cadence to catch up with people. I suppose there's nothing stopping me from doing that now. And I think any sort of retrospective on like, you know, goals and ways that you would live your life, you're going to have some of that, you know, why not just make that change in your life now? And I suppose you can, but there is something real about like units of time, one year, it makes you think, you can make these changes. So if I were going to be reliving this year one more time, I think the specific things that I would do in addition to the, the not burning myself out on video chat is, so I gave up drinking for the first, I actually, I didn't start right when lockdown started, but a little bit of the ways into lockdown as things were really becoming a blur and, the fact that I was drinking a beer or two most nights was adding into that sensation of everything just blurring together. I gave up drinking for about a month and a half completely, which I really haven't done for that long. I don't maybe since I turned 21, to be honest. Um, but I wish I would have kept it up because I did kind of slip back into it after a while. And I do think when I am drinking somewhat regularly particularly with like the repeated rhythm of the day in the house it it slows me down a little bit and i don't know like i I guess in general i wish i could have been used the fact that i have complete control of my time and my day 
and do the same thing every day to really put in like healthy and productive structures in my life more so than I did. And maybe spent a little bit more time creating and a little bit less time just like, I don't know, idly scrolling my phone in front of me, etc. cetera. Um, I do feel like I've been more engaged with my girls and my daughters this year, but I wish I could have done that even more. So, well, a year is a long time when they're one and a half and three and a half respectively. I mean, that means, you know, it's basically been my whole, my, my younger daughter's whole life to, to date has been in lockdown. And I guess if I were going to do it one more time, I would, I would spend even more time with them, try to be even healthier, even more focused. Maybe this isn't the type of answer you were looking for, but that's kind of what came to mind. So I don't know. What about you? So if you get to do it once, I mean, I think you've made some good points. I would probably just like give myself a notebook or if nothing physical goes back, just the, okay, bear in mind this of bullet points of when certain things would happen so as to be ready and just prepare a little better. And I guess I would have the same goals in mind as we talked about, like what things would you prioritize if you were looping a day, uh, which was just like, be ready for specific things to happen and strive for a little bit better outcome. So again, not that interesting of an answer, I suppose. But I really like what you said about why does it have to be a time loop that we apply these lessons to? Why not just use our experience to affect our decisions going forward? I think that's a really valuable insight. And I don't think it's going to surprise anyone when I make reference to Ebenezer Scrooge. It's like, yeah, just turn your life around going forward. Don't don't worry about what's happened already because that's happened. It is very Scroogean. And we, most of us at least, most of us at least are not time looping. So we don't have to worry about that eventuality because it's a pretty far out there chance that any of us are going to experience that. But all of us can learn from our experiences and use that to impact our choices in the future. Agreed, for sure. I mean, it's uh, it's hard to do. I think that's part of the appeal of New Year's resolutions is it feels like almost like a time loop. You're repeating the same 365 days just with a different number at the end of it. So now's the time when you get to do start from scratch and do things a little differently. But I have a, one of my good friends in, very much does not do New Year's resolutions because he says... I want, I don't want to defer changes I want to make in my life. I just want to do them. And I think that's the exact same conclusion that you were just talking about there. Like that you can make them at any time, not just the start of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Make your resolution the day that you have the idea that you want to do it. Don't, don't put it off. Sure. Uh, But I did like, I didn't even think about the, the angle of knowing that things are coming. Like, man, you could go in GameStop at its valley sell at its peak and be literally a multi-millionaire without much effort bitcoin too that's true could be wearing a mask before it's cool good point yeah maybe go contract it early and then 
just get through that, you know, one or two weeks. And then you have, you're completely liberated the year. You don't have to personally live in fear because you've got the antibodies. But now is not really the time, but have you ever seen um, Osmosis Jones? Yeah. Okay. What about it? Just, you said antibodies and I was thinking about the immune system and stuff. That would be an interesting one to revisit. I'm not sure I've seen that since like middle school. Well, kind of diverged there for a minute, uh, but that was a that was a thoughtful question. Thank you for for raising it. Right back at you. I suppose two episodes in a row where uh, <laughs> we've gotten a little bit thoughtful for a moment. But let's get back to shooting aliens. What do you say? Okay, let's try. So, Edge of Tomorrow, 2014. Just a couple of very basic thoughts on this movie before we start talking about what it actually is. Edge of Tomorrow is a really terrible title for a movie, especially like a smart and cool movie like this. Why you got to have such a dumb name for it? Edge of Tomorrow doesn't mean anything. Well, in their defense, I mean, a time loop movie mostly has been a day repeating over and over. So you never quite get to tomorrow. So you're only ever on the edge of tomorrow. I guess, yeah. It's not the worst title. It's better than A Bucket of Blood. Right. There's at least some thematic connection, and it sounds like an action movie, and it is an action movie. I just think it sounds too generic for the action movie that it is. For for context, one alternate title to the movie that they have pushed ever since the movie kind of flopped at the box office a little bit, kind of maybe came to the same conclusion that Edge of Tomorrow was a little generic but you'll often see it marketed now as live, die, repeat, which is a hair cheesy, but is much more unique and clear about what you're about to watch. Yeah, it tells you what's going on. I still don't love it, but they do like put it on the DVD cases now. Yeah. Kind of like uh, Ghostbusters answer the call or whatever for the 2016 one. Mm. And I thought it was funny when I was researching this is that it's somewhat loosely based off of a Japanese novel, (laughs) which is titled all you need is kill, which is a pretty funny name for a a thing. I don't think it has much to do with actually what is going on here, but I I thought that was just kind of a fun, uh, it's kind of like die hard. Like that's a really great and thoughtful action movie. But if you had named this, all you need is kill. It would forever be the movie that sounds like it's just stupid violence, but actually has some kind of thoughtful undercurrents to it. I don't know. I thought that was good. But as I mentioned, this was considered something of a flop when it came out. It wasn't like a utter catastrophe, I don't think. Not like a John Carter level flop, but um, it made less than they wanted it to make. It cost over $100 million to make. And it brought in only $370 million worldwide, which for a major summer blockbuster in 2014 is very much on the low side. Yeah, we'll talk about it a little more, but it kind of highlights the danger in this day and age of throwing a ton of money at a quote-unquote original idea. If it's a movie that isn't a sequel 
or isn't based on some IP that is instantly recognizable by Americans, the box office will suffer, which is kind of sad. It kind of feels like you need to use the model of Blumhouse, where you figure out how to make the movie as cheap as possible. And then worst cases, you probably didn't lose that much money. But then again, part of the appeal of this movie is that it is so high budget and so polished. Right. Wikipedia talked about that, and I, I don't know what evidence they cite for this, but that it suffered domestically for not being based on a known IP, but was reasonably successful internationally because Tom Cruise was in it. <laughs> so the actor can be the known quantity to ensure decent box office returns. And that's probably been known forever. Of course, yeah. You have a star that carries it. So in our last episode, which was our little retrospective, we talked about some ideas, a way we can freshen up our format a little bit. And today I want to experiment with something that is one of the things I pitched. And I'm calling this the hyper recap. So instead of our format where we kind of talk through it together, I'm just going to give a fairly quick outline of it. And then we can kind of have a more free flowing section of discussion that I have titled plot thoughts, where we can hop around. We're not obliged to, to stay exactly in the point of the film that we're talking about. So we'll, we'll see how this goes and can either continue to use it or it could be the host prerogative how we structure this from now on, but I thought it would be a fun experiment. So sure. You ready for my hyper recap of edge of tomorrow? Yeah, let's see how it goes. So aliens called mimics have invaded Earth and humans are uniting globally into a united defense force to battle this scourge. U.S. Major William Cage, played by Tom Cruise, is a recruiter and a PR goon for the UDF. And he's talking up a recent military victory in Verdun, led by war hero Rita Vertasky, played by Emily Blunt, a.k.a. the Angel of Verdun and an army of mecha-suited soldiers. When Cage is assigned to battle duty for an upcoming invasion by UDF General Brigham, he threatens to blackmail the general with blame and bad coverage in his PR. In retaliation, the general orders Cage arrested and sent to a military base. Cage wakes up at the base and tries to talk his way out of battle, but learns that the general passed along some fake information that Cage was a private and a deserter, not a white-collar officer like he actually is. And so Cage is placed in the Misfit J-Squad. At the invasion the next day, the Mimics seem to anticipate every move by the UDF and quickly win the battle. Cage slays a large Mimic that collapses on him as Cage too dies. But Cage then awakes back at the military base the day before and relives the same day the same lost invasion, and each time he dies, he wakes up in that previous day at that same spot. During one of these first few loops, he saves Vita Fritaski's life on the battlefield, and she recognizes his time-looping ability and says, come find me when you wake up. It takes him a couple of loops, but Cage manages to find Vritaski, who, along with the scientist Dr. Carter, played by Noah Taylor, explains that they've discovered that mimics use time loops to win battles. But if a human is exposed to mimic blood, 
gains that looping ability, which Vertasky did at Verdun, which is how she managed to be the hero there, but has since lost the time looping cage who begins to have visions of the mimic Omega, the orchestrator and brain of all the mimics needs to find and slay this Omega with Vertasky's training and guidance. We witness several loops as Private Cage consistently becomes more of a badass soldier and coaches Vertasky on how to survive as they get closer to the Omega. And we linger on one loop in particular where they make it to a house that has a helicopter, where it eventually emerges that they had made it this far in several loops, but Vertasky never survives past this moment, which has become traumatizing to Cage, who's developed an attachment to Vertasky. When this happens again, Cage decides to undertake the quest himself so Vertasky doesn't have to die. And in fact, he successfully gets to where the vision was leading him. But instead of the Omega, it's a trap to suck him dry of his blood and his looping ability. The Omega has discovered that Cage is time looping and wants to make it stop. Cage manages to drown himself and escape. And Cage, Vertasky, and Dr. Carter come up with a new approach use some of Dr. Carter's experimental tech to connect to the Omega and find its true location. They convince General Grigham to give them the confiscated prototype, which takes several loops to successfully pull off. But then they need to escape the armed security at the UDF HQ, which takes even more loops and results in a car chase. Cage finally manages to use the tech to connect with the Omega and discover that it is located under the Louvre in Paris. But during this car chase, Cage is injured and captured where he receives a blood transfusion, which makes him lose his time looping ability. Cage and Vertasky in this same loop escape the hospital, make it back to the base, and convince that misfit J squad that Cage had initially been assigned to to defy their orders, go to Paris, and attack this Omega, their one shot to kill this alien beast. In Paris, their attack effort goes poorly at first, and most of the J-Squad dies, leaving just a few plus Cage and Vertasky. And using an abandoned helicopter, they make a dramatic last surge to the Omega. With only Cage and Vertasky surviving just a short distance from the Omega, Vertasky gives the explosives to Cage, along with a kiss and a thank you, and she creates enough of a path for Cage to get into this pool of water where the Omega is located. Cage tosses the explosives into the Omega just as he drowns too. The explosion kills the Omega and every mimic worldwide. They all crumple and die defeated, but the J-Squad, Cage, and Vertasky are dead too. However, the Omega's blood envelops Cage just as he's drowning, and as he dies, he loops back again even further this time, back to the very first time that we saw Cage, right before his encounter with General Grigham. And we learned that the mimics have all died. The Omega's defeat looped back with Cage. Cage visits the base and confirms that the J-Squad survived the loop, as did Vertasky. And just when he's about to have an emotional reunion with her, she doesn't remember or recognize him at all, and Cage laughs. And that's the end of the movie. So that was the plot of Edge of Tomorrow 2014. So 
thought we could uh, dive into some of our plot thoughts. What are some of our kind of reactions to characters, plot points, general things about this movie? Why don't you go first, Brian? So, obviously, a lot of stuff happens in this movie. A lot of epic, action-y alien battles. And the first time I watched this movie, I rented it on Amazon, which for some reason my smart TV struggles with the Amazon app. It works fine on my iPad and my phone and whatever else, but on the TV it just doesn't work very well. And it was doing this weird thing where like, when the background of a scene stayed pretty much the same, it could handle that. So we have... Scenes where Tom Cruise is like in the office talking to somebody and it could deal with that. But then he'd get in a helicopter and like the door of the helicopter would open up and suddenly there's a million alien ships buzzing around the screen and it would like slow to a frame a second. It was very strange. It was like suddenly everything would be extremely pixelated and the... The way I fixed it is eventually I rented it on a different app, but I, I watched about a half an hour of the movie this way, and it was it was funny because you always knew when something was going to happen because <laughs> it would like suddenly be in filmed on a potato vision. <laughs> yeah, given that there are huge bursts of visual activity in this movie, I can see how that would be a blocker from... Uh really appreciating it in its entirety. And we, we can kind of spitball and shoot these things back and forth, but something that struck me about this fictional war that's going on with the aliens is that for some reason it's just World War II again. I had that exact same observation. In particular, the main battle is very D-Day. It's like storming a beach. It's exactly D-Day because it, it explains that the aliens got here by riding a meteor that crash landed in Germany. And then they spread out from Germany and took over all of Europe. And now the defense forces are stationed in England and they're about to go across the channel and fight this army that started in Germany and took over the continent. And I don't know why the English channel has stopped these monsters because there's really no reason for it. Uh, maybe the explanation is like Lilo and Stitch and they're they're too dense to cross water. They sink or something. It, but they never say that. It, the, as far as we can tell, these monsters are pretty unstoppable. And like the things that saved England in World War II, it's like they had a really good navy and they had air superiority. That's a good point. They're basically unstoppable here. Like why are they holding back... I mean, maybe the fact that Vertasky was looping gave them pause. They wanted to make sure that, I don't know. But it doesn't really hesitate from completely dominating the battle and expanding. So I don't really know what's going on. But yeah, what these things look like are like the little tables that come in pizza boxes. Or if you took the blade out of the middle of a blender, that's really what it's like. These little tripod things that move by spinning around really super fast. And it looks like they're made out of sharp tentacles or something. Right. They'll cut you up just by moving around. So I just watched the new Disney animated movie called uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. 
and it has a bad creature that is very much like this. It's like a spreading scourge that also is very tentacly and like wipes through large swaths of humanity at once. But in that one, it's stopped by water. So like that would almost make sense here too. Like if it was stopped by water and that was why it was kind of, you know, clustered in Europe and hadn't completely taken over the world and you could have this more D-Day type invasion. But we definitely see them operating in water towards the end of the movie. So I don't know. And then also Verdun was another important battle site. So it's like simultaneously also World War One. It's like have some new places be important. <laughs> I mean, if you've read World War Z in that they have these new cities that are important. And because it's an oral history, it's presented that there are interviews with people and they're all using this new shorthand, all these new aside references to historical events that like, oh, you know, the Battle of Yonkers, because that's where the tide turned against the zombies. And it's like, it sounds funny to us, because obviously we didn't live through the zombie war. But if we had, we would have this new lexicon of famous places. Right. I guess it's just maybe piggybacking off of the epic feel of war movies and like the European, great European wars or whatever they were. And trying to co-opt that but it is a little bit odd how it, it basically at times feels just like a historical war movie but with aliens instead of axis uh axis soldiers but at the same time having a whole army that can time loop is like a military historian's dream <laughs> like any war gamer the idea that the army could rerun the battle over and over until they get it right like that's there are whole historians who like make their careers on imagining that scenario yeah uh, so another thought i had i really liked at the beginning when cruz is this sort of slimy he's not like aggressively slimy but he's kind of pathetic and you know he's weak and cowardly as the character at the start he was really believable in it. And I was like cringing as he was trying to plead and blackmail his way out of getting into battle. It was just really good acting by, by Cruz, I thought. And the general he's kind of trying to shame from sending him into combat is played by, I think it's Brian Gleason, Brendan Gleason. Brendan Gleason. I think I know him from something. What do I know him from? Well, I know what you know him from. He is Mad-Eye Moody in the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> oh, man. That's pretty funny. And he also appeared in the Smurfs, too. So there you go. <laughs> well, okay. You probably best remember him from that. I know you're a huge Smurfs 2 fan. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about is uh, the mechs. So the mechs are pretty interesting because at the beginning, they're kind of played up in this this news footage that is kind of our exposition at the beginning of the movie as like the thing that will save humanity. And then the very first battle, we see them in action and they are making basically no difference. Like people are still getting killed left and right. Their skin is still fully exposed. So they're dying real fast. It's like, it's not protective at all. And it's kind of like a large scale joke 
that gradually dawns on you that it, the mechs have absolutely nothing to do with the success of the Battle of Verdun and the success of the military in general. They're just like a stupid boondoggle. It's really the time looping that has allowed uh, the humans to survive the aliens so far. I'm really glad you called that out because I kept wondering who along the way missed that. Like, I guess in the world of the story, who came up with the suits and decided they were important? But then also, who among the filmmakers... It's, it seems like somewhere along the way, somebody involved in the filmmaking should have thought, we're spending a ton of money realizing these suits for the movie that ultimately are just not useful. I kept thinking, you know what would be a lot more useful in this battle against these blender monsters is something that encased your body entirely and like maybe rolled around on treads so that it could work in any terrain. And I think they had something similar in the real World War II. You know? Like all the powers had these things. I think they were called tanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. And then your, you know, your abdomen isn't exposed to <laughs> sharp tentacles. But I guess they just so happened to try him out in the battle where Bertaski became the angel of Verdun, so they became the magic bullet to defeating these aliens, even though it quickly becomes obvious that they are nothing of the sort. So I, I thought that was intentional. It's possible I'm giving the screenplay and the filmmakers too much credit on that, but that's how I interpreted it. This movie very much uses and even lampshades the fact that heroes never wear helmets. And Emily Blunt's character never wearing a helmet you can always see that it's her and it's pretty funny and gawky when Cruz is wearing Cruz's character is wearing the helmet during the first battle and it's kind of like a little loose on him and lopsided and he just looks really pathetic with it and then as he becomes the hero he never wears his helmet and I thought that was uh entertainingly done right I believe there was an XKCD or something there's a TV tropes article about it that says helmets are hardly heroic. And I guess the logical driving factor behind this is that when you're going to pay an actor a bunch of money to have his likeness in a film, you don't want his head to be hidden. And also for story purposes, you need to know who's the important character. And if they all look exactly the same, that's harder to see. But in a battle, again, against blender monsters... You realistically want to be protected. And I mean, in Lord of the Rings, it's one thing where it's like a couple people running along and they need to be mobile. But e even that, I mean, you could pick apart, like it would make sense to have a bigger force in that scenario too. Not just five people running around with the most important MacGuffin in the world in a pocket. Uh, so I think what we're getting to here is that movies don't do the most realistic job of depicting best practices of warfare. <laughs> I will say it kind of worked in this movie because of two things that kind of lined up here. One is if you take as I do, that it's a joke that the mechs and all the equipment that the soldiers are using are basically pointless. 
then just having a helmet doesn't really add anything. But also how Tom Cruise, also all of the, really anyone, if they die, it doesn't matter because as soon as Tom Cruise dies, everything is just going to rewind and happen again. So like there's less consequence to getting hit in the head. That's true. I mean, all their benefit comes from being able to repeat and get to the point where you're, you've essentially got a save state. Right. What they're working towards is like a tool assisted speed run of the battle. Right. And so they could just go into war naked and <laughs> win the battle is kind of how it's presented. Right. They just got to memorize the same X things they have to do. I read one review of it that compared it to those like hardcore platforming games. Like I played one called Super Meat Boy back in the day where it's all about memorizing the, the level and getting the, the muscle memory, the twitch memory and reflexes down just right so that you avoid every obstacle and get to your destination. And this is basically that. It's it's not like any sort of extra heroism or anything. He just literally has to memorize it and, and get do the right things at the right moments. And, and there's a part during his sort of training montage where he's trying to coach Vertasky and oh you got it take 30 paces and then look left. And they're just like trying to memorize the script to get to the points that they need to get to. Right. And not to harp on it endlessly, but another aspect of the ridiculous nature of these robot suits is that Emily Blunt has a big knife. <laughs> and this is not a problem that originates here. I mean, it's the same thing as in Avatar, where the bad guy has got his mech suit and a big sword which makes no sense. Swords are a good weapon because humans are squishy and you can stab them, but you can't very well stab or cut a machine. You got to like do other stuff to it. But it did seem like, so I, first of all, I'm 100% in on the sword being ridiculous. And it reminded me of the final fantasy iconic sword cloud strife has in FF seven. It's just like this big thing that, is completely over the top, but it is intended to make you look badass, even if it is not really the most practical. Didn't we see her using... So, like, the blade can cut through the enemies. That's true. I guess when you're, when you're fighting the aliens, that could work. But even so, I mean, I, I think there's a bit in It's Always Sunny where it's sword versus gun, and one of them is like, oh, no, you could just zigzag, and the sword would be just as good. And it's like, not really. The gun, for most purposes, is going to be better. <laughs> There's a movie called Equilibrium that I might someday bring to this podcast. Have you ever seen Equilibrium? No. So it's built around this fake martial art called Gun Kata, where you're basically doing kung fu while holding a gun. And let's just say that it raises the sword versus gun element to a whole new level. It would be interesting to deconstruct in a, a podcast episode one day. Gun kata. It's just a great like word and concept of doing like samurai karate, ninja karate with a, a gun in your hand and stuff. So. Maybe we could pair that with wanted where they're curving the bullets. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of final fantasies, final fantasy eight, 
the weapons there are gun blades. So they're simultaneously guns and swords. So I guess Emily Blunt could have just gone that way. Just make the sword shoot bullets. It seems like she basically has carte blanche to do whatever she wants. Give my sword bullets something they could probably pull off. Yeah, best of both worlds. One theme that I wanted to touch on, but not put in the good things or bad things, because I think it kind of straddles those components, is that in some ways this movie is refreshing in the way that it treats the Vertasky character, Emily Blunt's character, as like a woman with agency that doesn't fall into the typical blockbuster action movie tropes of what a woman is supposed to do. Although I do feel like it walks that back a little bit towards the end of the movie. Like basically, even though she's the badass and the one doing the training, she ultimately has the job of empowering the man and giving the man the kiss and thanking him at the end of the movie. I don't know. It kind of went both ways for me, but it was cool to see her in action. Like she was very convincing as an action hero. I wanted even more sequences with her kicking ass. So I thought she she did a pretty great job. Yeah, I had some mixed feelings about this. When we get the introduction at the beginning about how she's the angel of Verdun and it makes it sound was like the first person to kill one of the aliens and she didn't just kill one, she killed a hundred. And it's like, well, now we're getting into what the internet calls Mary Sue territory. It's like, oh, she just wiped him out single-handedly, like didn't even break a sweat. But then we find out that it's because of the time loop powers and, you know, drilling it and learning from her mistakes and getting better. And so I, I think that aspect of it works. But then I was also reminded of a movie I watched recently just kind of randomly, which was called Periscope Down. It's this comedy from 1996 with Kelsey Grammer in the lead. And he's got kind of a Bad News Bears ragtag submarine crew that he is leading through war games. And one of the members is this woman. And I think it's still policy that women can't serve on submarines. Like, I think that's one of the last vestiges. And, you know, they say, oh, it's progressive and she won't... It's it's old-fashioned thinking to say that just having a woman on a submarine will be a distraction and yada yada. But then, of course, she's on the submarine and immediately becomes a distraction. And not that that is on her. It's just a thing that happens. But, of course, she becomes the love interest for Kelsey Grammer. And I felt things being retrod here. It's like... yes she's the powerful soldier but of course she's also there to be the love interest right kind of undercuts itself a little bit i mean i will say with some of my complaints about this movie i am happy to chalk up as this is a feel-good action summer blockbuster that you go to the movies to see and it has to hit the important beats and a big kiss between the two leads is one of those things so, you know, grading on a curve, I guess. But I, I definitely agree that I felt like it undercut some of the things it was trying to do with the character. Also, every time Tom Cruise approaches her at the base, at the, you know, 
the starting beat of the time loop that we see over and over. The first time she appears, Emily Blunt is doing this weird, sexy push-up. And maybe it's like a yoga move. It, it's like a seal pose. Like the, right. the top half of the body is up and the lower half of the body is flat on the ground. Right. So I, I think blockbusters do this somewhat frequently with like the strong woman, if there ever is a strong woman, where they have to sexify her a little bit. So, or like if they're doing manly things or something, you need to be reminded that they're actually a sexy woman. It made me think of when she kept doing that over and over again. Of course, I was thinking about it too. It made me think of the Transformers movie when uh, Megan Fox's character is like a mechanic and she is looking at the engine of one of these cars and she like bends over all super sexy because she can't just be a mechanic who knows how to fix cars. She also still has to be the sexy woman. I guess it's just kind of built into the DNA of these blockbusters to do things like that. I wanted to bring up the time blood. (laughs) Yeah. What allows people to time loop and the monsters as well is a subset of them, like 1% or 2% of this mob of blender monsters are these things called alphas and they glow this bluish green color. It's, it's basically Baja blast color. (laughs) And if you crack one of these alphas open and the blood spills on you, you can time loop. And I really wanted to taste this time blood (laughs) because I can only imagine it tastes like Baja Blast. Or if you've ever played Fortnite, there's this substance in there called Slurp that is shown as kind of a soft drink, but it restores both your health and your shield. So that's what I was feeling watching this film is, is a serious craving to taste the time blood. The Slurp, what does the alien Slurp taste like? I hadn't considered the taste of it. I just imagined it tasted disgusting, but I could see how maybe it's got potent, sour, sweet, explosive flavors to it. Cause it's... Tropical lime. <laughs> um, but it made me wonder, since Vrataski knew that this time blood makes you start looping, and that's the thing that gives you powers... Why didn't they try to get somebody else the time blood? Maybe it's just too hard to get, but like they never even seem to discuss what would happen if she also had the time blood. Now, maybe they would both loop or something. Did I miss some reference to that? Or or it seems like that was something that they should at least think about. That's a good question. It seems like they should just make it army policy. I mean, everybody is ready to listen to her. Why doesn't she just tell everyone that that's how it works? And to everybody target the alphas right get big glasses of baja blast for every single soldier going through some of my assorted thoughts here so there's a famous anecdote about tom cruise i don't know if it's tom cruise himself or if it's like the people who make the movies but that he's too short to be your typical action star he's about five seven which is only like an inch taller than me and significantly shorter than you brian And there were a handful of shots where, oh, sorry, the anecdote is that they have him stand on a box or they give him some sort of shoes or some sort of platform to appear taller than he is. 
And there were definitely some shots where I noticed that happening here. There was one particular one later on in the movie when they're on the ship about to deploy and he's standing like maybe five inches. I don't know if it's like (laughs) we're supposed to think that he was actually five inches taller than her, but it's very much shot that he's like five inches taller than her looking down on her. And it's sort of like this moment of warmth and connection between them. But I was just laughing because they are very clearly the same height. He might even be shorter than her, actually. And I don't know. I definitely noticed that a few times. Oh, man. I have heard that, like, my dad is a big Jack Reacher fan. And apparently Jack Reacher is described in the books as being over six feet tall. And then Tom Cruise bought up the rights for his production company and played Jack Reacher himself. And so I've heard from my dad many times, oh, he's too short to be Jack Reacher. (laughs) That's pretty funny. It doesn't come across probably on the radio. I am a little bit taller than Dan. It's one of the reasons I like to hang out at his house. (laughs) But not that much taller. I'm only 5'11". And my dad and my little brother are both taller than I am. And so finding... he, he, What did he... Dan just said Tom Cruise is considerably shorter than me. That's a rare state of affairs. <laughs> so, yes, he is uh, a little on the shorter side. But, you know, it just it makes me mad that in society, to be a short man is to be a weak and unappealing man. As a short man myself, I'm kind of glad that I didn't have to pass on my short genetics to sons at this point. Only daughter is where it's okay to be short because... I basically could only ever pursue women who were shorter than me. And sure enough, my wife is about four or five inches shorter than me. So it's just limiting to be a short man in a modern society. So I feel like 5'11 is, is about the right height to be, Brian. So you can... Yeah, it's it's all right. But <laughs> I've certainly fallen for the occasional very tall woman, and that can create a problem. But, I mean, you end up in scenarios, I've got a really tall dad and a short mom and then what part of that do you get it's like gotta be selective about these things i guess i don't know sure yeah right because i feel like if you have that wide variety first of all that there's got to be weird to have i feel like more than about six inches and the height difference does that become a thing i don't know i've never dated anyone that would much shorter than me so i can't really speak to that but also you're right there's high variance in the genetics at that point. Like maybe you get the full short end of that, or maybe you get the full tall end of that. And it sounds like you were kind of somewhere on the taller end, but not necessarily quite as tall as your dad. Right. But we're not the tall cast. We are the goods of film podcast. <laughs> and for all you know, we exist as disembodied voices. So Right. We're, we're just minds that contemplate... The merits of film. Brains in jars. Um, A couple of segments of the film that I really liked. One was this bit that really stuck out to me as like an instantly iconic thing that they didn't do too much of. It kind of reminded me of the suicide segment in Happy Death Day to You. But after Cage is told by Vertasky to come find her, he has to figure out how to escape and he builds it around like rolling under a truck during squad push-ups. And the first time he does it, 
he gets squashed by the truck. And then he's like frustrated and waiting till the push-ups again. And that time he has to like move right out of the tire's reach. And I just thought that was a funny bit, a good use of uh, of time loops there. It made me laugh. I did like the other soldiers' reactions to him just getting squished like a bug. <laughs> the commanding officer is like, what are you doing? Why would, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing I liked is, I mean, obviously a, a full, I don't know, maybe a third of the movie, the middle third, is basically just time loop as a training montage on steroids. He has to get more badass. He has to memorize more and more things. He has to get a little bit further along. And the time loop element really plays up and aligns well with this idea of the training montage and the leveling up and the getting stronger and stronger. I just thought that was a very satisfying thing to watch. We talked about Tom Cruise's height I think it's also worth talking about Tom Cruise's age. We get a scene in this film where one of the loops, he like runs away AWOL from camp and hides out instead of going to fight the battle. And he's in this pub in London. And there are old folks sitting around kind of giving him dirty looks. And eventually somebody talks to him and they're shaming him because shouldn't a young man be out on the front lines and fighting the battle. And Tom Cruise was 51 when they made this movie. So he's not exactly a young buck. (laughs) He's not a 25 year old trench soldier. You know, he's been playing young men since like whenever Top Gun came out and risky business in the early eighties. But that said, I mean, he wears the, he wears the years. Well, agreed. Yeah. I think he, he does not look 51 here. He looks like he's maybe, I don't know, 35 or even a couple years earlier than that, maybe. Looks like our age almost there, Brian. And they, yeah, I mean, that's true. That is that is our age, pretty much. But they do a decent job of explaining that away by having him start out as like a career officer and then he gets demoted. Right, yeah. To get him into the thick of it. So you mentioned the, the loop where he goes and he has that kind of AWOL loop where he's just kind of feeling crappy about everything. And the fact that he has to keep reliving this violence over and over again, and it's never ending, unceasing failure. And this was one of a couple times where the movie slows down from its frantic pace for a loop and lets the character reflect that I think work really well and really flesh out the character as seeming like a person The other one that I think I liked even more is the one where it's pretty late in the training montage. They've made it pretty far. They get to this house with the helicopter and he's delaying going off in the helicopter, just trying to spend some time with Vertasky before they do it and talk her out of, oh, let's wait, let's hang out for a night and then go and do it. We can recharge our batteries, etc. And you can... And then it comes out that basically he knows that she's about to die at this portion of the day and doesn't want to have to relive it again and again. And it does a good job of both pointing out the just intense trauma that he must be undergoing 
to live through the battle every single day, but also to make us feel his growing connection to her as they train together day in, day out, at least from his perspective. And I don't know, I thought that was a really effective scene kind of about half, two thirds of the way into the movie that uh, brought me back into the character some. Yeah, I agree. They tackled the standard time loop arc and in kind of a different way here. I mean, we didn't have scenes of combat in any movie that we've seen yet. Right. So this, you know, adds PTSD to the mix. Like we could imagine right. in many of these movies that we've watched, something like PTSD would develop from having to do the same thing over and over, whatever it is. But now here we are actually with the characters fighting a war. Exactly, yeah. So another thing that stuck out to me, I wanted to spend a minute here thinking about, is this moment when he loses his ability to time loop. So he can't time loop anymore. This happens when he gets a blood transfusion after the UDF kind of guard is chasing after him when he has this device that allows him to connect with the Omega. Um, what did you think of this twist of him losing his time loop ability? Well, you talked earlier about how time loop movies don't do enough with the jarring after effects of emerging from a time loop. And here is a movie that kind of tackles that. You know, the character gets used to not having any consequences and then suddenly they're all piled back on again. They got used to being the Sultan and now they're the beggar again. So I thought it was interesting. I agree. So Happy Death Day tried to do this. It had a bit where basically she was like getting some permanent scarring with each loop as every time she died. But in that one, I didn't really feel that she was in danger of permanently dying. Like it just still felt like she was in the loop and things weren't really that different. But here it was like very much a visceral sense of, Oh my God, this is it. It's all on the line. And I thought that was, it did a good job of raising the stakes. On the other hand, I actually felt like the movie started to suffer after this happened, because if you get rid of your gimmick, even if it does create more tension, you're back to being just an action movie at that point, you know? And I personally was never in doubt that they were going to figure out a way to get to the Omega and kill it. And it kind of brought me out a little bit, like knowing that it was, I don't know, you're more generic, linear. They're going to get to the end and barely win type of situation. So it simultaneously worked, but also made the movie a, hair, a, a bit more generic for the last third of the movie, the last half hour. Right, it got conventional. And in a sense, it's like if you're watching a superhero movie and then suddenly the superheroes don't have the powers anymore. It's like that's one less tool in the toolbox and it just seems kind of arbitrary that it's not there anymore. Right. Uh, we'll have to talk about Spider-Man 2 someday. I think when Spider-Man 3 comes out, we should watch Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3. The original 1, 2, and 3. We could do it like High School Musical. We could do 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 1, 2, 3. And we could throw Into the Spider-Verse in there as well. Good idea. 
So another thing that stuck out to me is the J squad. We spent a lot of time in the first half hour getting to know them. And then as soon as Cage's character connects with Vertaski, they're basically completely gone, or they're at least on the periphery for like, you know, just a snippet here or there as he gets his way to Vertaski and to the scientist. And it struck me as like, why would we spend this long with these characters at the beginning? But then it, it ultimately does pay off because in this last loop, when he can't die, he goes to the J squad and they become his supporting unit when they have to get to the Omega at the Louvre in Paris. I still felt like it was weird how they completely disappeared from the picture just about for like the middle portion of the movie only to come back again. But it at least eventually kind of made sense why we got to know all of them individually a little bit, you know? And this crew is like the standard assortment of space Marines that you would see in aliens or starship troopers. You got like the farm boy and the tough fighter girl. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is this very final coda. So this is after he kills the Omega and kind of gets sucked into its blood and loops back further to basically right when the movie starts. So for me, this is another thing that was a little bit of a mixed bag. And I'm also going to grade on the curve a little bit. Like it's a blockbuster. You need to have your hero survive and stuff. I don't know. It just felt kind of cheap to me that like they all sacrificed themselves and then everything was undone. Like I know that that's kind of the premise of a time loop, but it was a little bit of a bait and switchy type thing. Like, Oh, now everything has consequences. Oh wait, no, it doesn't. You're going to go back again. And it just felt just a little bit arbitrary for me. I don't know. What was your reaction to this, this last kind of segment? So I was surprised. I think it achieved its desired result in that regard to the other movies we've watched. Once the character escapes the time loop, they usually end up in the next day or just the next moment. But here we have someone who escapes and winds up earlier than the period we've seen looped. He actually starts out in the first scene in the movie again, where he's on the helicopter coming to the base to meet the general. Right. So it was something new. I was a little surprised that the positive results looped with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, they'd established that the monsters had time loop properties too, so that he would both loop and the monsters would loop kind of works to, for me. Yeah. So I had this idea, I was thinking about it, and I, a different ending that you could do that would have a different tone to it, it would be kind of more Inception-y. What if, so at the very start of the movie, he wakes up and he's got like the hat shade in his eyes and he says something like, oh man, I had a weird dream or something like that. And then we see everything that we see and then it cuts back and he kind of wakes up again. He says, oh, I just had a weird dream. But now we have context for that because we've just seen everything that he's just seen. And so it suggests that maybe, and, and then it cuts off there before we see if the mimics actually died, if any of the other characters remember him or anything. And so it, it suggests perhaps an infinite loop of this thing happening over and over again. A kind of meta time loop happening. 
it would have been interesting. I don't know. I feel like you could have done something that was a little bit more ambiguous like that if you were going to go the route of re-looping back in time. Man, we got to end this month before we start getting into loops within loops. (laughs) One thing I wanted to talk about is the effect of fighting like impossibly powerful enemies. I recently watched the movie Bird Box for the first time on Netflix. Have you ever watched that one? No, I haven't seen that one. This was a recent Netflix original with Sandra Bullock. And the premise is that these like demon beings suddenly appear inexplicably. And if you see one, supposedly it presents to you as like the most frightening thing you've ever seen. Although it really seems like it's somewhere between a Dementor in Harry Potter and a Boggart in Harry Potter. Because it also like makes the people depressed. And if you see one of these things, you immediately do whatever you can to commit suicide. And so society immediately shuts down because of this wave of mass suicides. And honestly, people do a much better job of coping with this threat than... I would ever have reason to expect because this just seems completely insurmountable. Like even if you see them in a mirror or through a video camera, you off yourself. Interesting. It's also sort of like the basilisk because if you catch sight of it, you're toast. Oh, true. Or like a Gorgon type scenario with a Medusa, but they, they develop ways of getting around it. By, like, driving around with a GPS and all the car's windows painted out. And so, like, the GPS tells them where to go. And the conclusion I reached pretty early on is like, huh, it really seems like the only people who would be able to cope remotely well with this would be blind people. And, spoilers, that's the twist at the end, is the people who are coping the best are the blind people. Which, I don't think that should really be surprising because right it's like you you can't look at them but also it doesn't explain how they came to be there or what they're like even trying to do it's it's all very unexplained even by the end i bring this up because there's kind of a sliding scale of lethality when it comes to apocalyptic threats We've talked a little bit about zombie movies on the podcast and the difference between movies where the zombies can be dealt with by a headshot and then other movies where the zombies can run and maybe are completely indestructible, like you cut off an arm and it comes crawling after you. That's a very different, much more serious threat. And it just feels like when you've got a scenario where the apocalypse is caused by something that's almost impossible to defeat, everything just becomes so much bleaker. Another scenario, another show that I think of in this category is Attack on Titan. Have you ever watched any of Attack on Titan? No. So this is an anime where giants have destroyed the world. And like zombies, all they want to do is eat people, even though they don't really need to. And they're like sustained by solar energy or something. But humanity has to come up with this whole other 
mechanical approach to fighting the monsters. They have these like Spider-Man jetpack things that let them swing from the trees to get up to the head level of the giants to be able to fight them. And so the battle suits in this movie, useless though they eventually turn out to be, reminded me of these 3D motion devices that the people in Attack on Titan have. But in Attack on Titan, you know, you've got this assortment of good-looking anime people and men and women together in a unit. And my brain, which admittedly has not consumed that much anime, is expecting there's going to be some amount of romance going on here. And I've only watched season one. There's like four seasons. So I don't know what happens as it goes on. But I just found it so bleak that it's like impossible for anyone to be sexy. When there's this constant threat of complete annihilation from some kind of crazy monster that you can't really do anything against, everything else is kind of just blotted out. And I got a little bit of that feeling here in this movie to bring my long ramble back to relevance. Interesting. So in general, I don't agree with you, but I actually thought this movie tackled it about as well as you could because... One thing that is stated up front is that humanity is like newly hopeful because they just won their first battle. And there is a certain bleakness about Vrataski, uh, Emily Blunt's character, as in the starting component of the movie when we see the first couple battles where there's like a resignation, like she knows why they won the last battle and doesn't have it anymore. It's not explicitly stated, but I, I kind of sensed a sort of bleakness about her. And then when she sees that Cage has the ability, there's kind of a new spark and a new hope for her. And so I I kind of bought that there was like a hope between them and that it was something that she would be drawn to because she had seen it in action herself. So... Um, I don't know. I, I kind of see what you're saying, though. Like, there are other things where where romance just seems impossible. But it's funny. We keep talking about Harry Potter. And another Harry Potter connection, one thing that always stuck with me with the later Harry Potter books is the theme that even in the face of terrible impending tragedy and possible oblivion, humans have persisted and done their human things and survived. And... Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess I guess all I'm saying is um, I kind of bought it in this movie. I can see that. But I will say the, the kiss. So one thing we've talked a lot about in these movies is if only one person is going through the time loop, it creates an experiential imbalance and a relationship imbalance. And I very much bought that Cage would have fully attached himself to Vertaski because he's spending every single day with her and she is like empowering him and making him be his best self and they could be like level with each other but the fact that she kissed him in the very last loop was borderline Groundhog Day creepy where Bill Murray kisses Andy Mc- gets in bed with uh, Andy McDowell in the loop that ends it 
I honestly think this movie would have been better without that kiss. Although I did like the sort of romantic tension between them overall. I don't know. I, I was a little mixed on that because it had a little bit of the the creepy, you're only getting it from one perspective, but the other person has really only known you for like less than a day or whatever. We've talked about a lot of Harry Potter connections. One last one before we move to our overarching good things and not so good things is the plot point of implanted visions that are meant to deceive the character is a major thing in this movie where he has to get to this place where they're going to try and suck the blood out of him. So he loses his time looping, but they've just been drawing him there by like implanting visions in his head of the Omega being there. That's a plot point in the fifth Harry Potter book where Voldemort puts in Harry's head that Sirius Black is at the Ministry of Magic so that Harry will go to the Ministry of Magic. Actually, that's really super apt because Harry has the brain connection with Voldemort because of the whole Horcrux thing. There was this traumatic injury that they share and so now they're connected and Harry uses that to kind of get the one up on Voldemort but once you do it too much, Voldemort becomes aware of that and can use it against him and that's exactly what happens here because Tom Cruise gets the Horcrux ability by splashing himself with the time blood and then he thinks he's going to use that to pull the wool over the Omega's eyes but that's not a foolproof plan because it works both ways right well that is the sum of my assorted thoughts about this movie. So why don't we kind of get to our more overarching observations, strengths, weaknesses, and then our signature section, is it good? So you ready to talk about some overarching good things about this movie? Sounds good. The one I wanted to lead with is, I think the cast is awesome. In particular, I think Cruz and Blunt are fantastic blockbuster action leads and to me it was proof that you can have really compelling acting in blockbusters and having that elevate the material like i don't know you think of the stereotype action movies with no acting and no character development here's a very is a very good action movie that also has you know pretty compelling acting and characters i'm rooting for and want to learn more about and stuff i don't know I was impressed by the cast. Did you have anyone that in particular that you reacted to in this cast? I liked seeing these big movie stars as the heads. I thought they turned in good performances. And really, I was struck by seeing such a big budget thrown at a time loop movie for the first time. It was refreshing, rewarding. Although I did wonder, like, how many children could be fed from the money spent on those suits that ended up not doing anything. <laughs> in this alternate reality. No, I mean in in real reality. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, the <laughs> the filmmakers paid to make these things and put them in front of the camera, and ultimately the story beats could have largely been the same without them. Shave $2 million off the budget and go feed, you know, 500,000 poor kids. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, we haven't seen these 
large-scale battles in a time loop movie yet, and so that was very cool. Yeah, I agree. It was very fun to see that premise in this format and how, you know, in the action movie, there's kind of a trope where you can have the chumped champ arc for your main character. And it's typically kind of unbelievable in an action movie how like one person would go on to be the super badass so quickly. But I felt like it actually worked here because of the time loop. You could actually go through that whole, as I called it, uh, training montage on steroids to get better and better and actually go from being this kind of wimpy PR goon to this total badass blowing off aliens faces and stuff. Yeah. You were talking the other day to throw in another unrelated reference, but you were talking about that's Phil's boy from Hercules, (laughs) which is another good training montage that gets its own song. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, in general, you know, I don't go wild on the training montages. I, I respect their role, but I thought like it worked here. And of course, Hercules was a movie I was raised on. For me, that's an iconic one. And in particular, I liked how one of the very last things we see in that movie is Phil getting his uh, his rewards for, for being a great trainer. I like a good training montage. My favorite is the one from Rocky Four, where he's training in the snow and like helping villagers. And you see the evil Ivan Drago training in his super lab and being pumped full of steroids by the Russian scientists. Good stuff. But in a sense, I mean, what is a time loop if not a training montage? Right. It is growing through repetition. Well said. And I, I think the the time loop here did a good job in setting the tone for the movie. And the movie kind of really ran with that and got creative with it because it's both funny by like watching cage be a crappy soldier and die a whole bunch of times. And also aligns with just this intense action. The action scenes are really good. And the fact that like the time loop allows all those things to sort of happen. It was really well done. I thought I normally don't notice things like, editing or think too much about them but i was really struck by how well edited this movie was it it's so briskly paced and it never lingers more than it needs to in a specific area unless there's like a reason that we want to slow down and just the way that it always like jumps in a way that brings you right into the next scene without like letting the other scene linger too much just the pace of the movie is awesome and I really noticed it in the editing. Yeah, especially in the montage or any time that we got a bunch of loops intercut, it was always effective. It could be used for humor or just to build the sense that an obstacle was especially hard to overcome. How many loops do you think he went through? It would have had to have been a whole bunch in this case, I think. I agree. Like in the realm of several hundred. Right. Yeah, this is one of the the big ones. I didn't get a sense that it was like 10,000 years or whatever, but I would definitely say more than a year's worth of of loops, probably. Um, The last thing I wanted to say is, so despite the tepid box office, there have been talks for several years now of a sequel being made. 
And I would watch the shit out of a sequel to this movie. I would want to know what they tried to do. The working title is Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat, which is just not a very good title. But I'm hoping they uh, they manage to make it. Whatever it's titled, I'll go out and see it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they got to work on these titles. <laughs> Live, Die, Repeat, To You. <laughs> yeah. I would watch another one. There's interesting things they could do. The cast and the director have really talked it up as a great script that brings it in new and exciting directions. And there was one quote that it's both a prequel and a sequel, which makes me intrigued on on where it could go. Huh. I feel like they could do some of the things, like you said, of the aliens have a time looping army. Maybe now the humans have a time looping movie. Maybe mm. now instead of expensive armor suits, everybody's just got a camelback full of Baja Blast. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm ready to talk about some not so good things about this movie. All right. I will say I did not have too many things that I did not like. Even though it's maybe not high art, to me, this is what an original, fun, and exciting blockbuster should look like. Just unique not too formulaic very pleasing and exciting and i don't know like it's it's hard to be original and also be good while you're being original but this movie kind of made it look easy and i just didn't have too many complaints about it but a few small ones one that's not the movie's fault i gotta say that time loop fatigue it finally hit me it just struck me that there was Nothing fresh about a time loop as I was watching this. Now that I've seen, I think I watched a total of like 15 time loop movies in February and now the first half of March. But that's, I now know the number that is the right amount of time loop movies to watch in a short period of time. <laughs> You've gone harder with it than I have, but I have felt that sentiment a couple times this month too. Another thing that's not the movie's fault, but this really made me want to see it on a big screen. I watched it on a combination of my phone screen and my laptop screen, and I could see really being more taken with the energy of it if I had seen it on a jumbo widescreen in a movie theater. I'm hopeful that if the sequel ever comes out, we'll be able to be going back to movie theaters and I can I can see it there. I watched it on my TV, but I also was desiring a bigger screen, not least of all because when I was watching it at first, it was doing that weird thing where any time a battle started, everything would grind to a halt. <laughs> and I couldn't tell what anything was. It all just became a muddy mess. Right. Last kind of overarching complaint. I wanted even more psychological exploration the moments where it slowed down a little bit were for me the most memorable and effective moments or at least the most effective moments maybe not the most memorable but i don't know i guess you can't really have it both ways because if it was much slower then it would lose a lot of its charm otherwise but it just had such a cool vision of war and this guy going through it over and over again that i wanted to see more of how he was like dealing with 
the trauma of being in battle every single day. Like it made me think of this sci-fi classic masterpiece called The Forever War. It's a short novel by Joe Haldeman. And that one, it's actually kind of the inverse. So it's about these soldiers that have to fly back and forth on these near light speed spaceships. And because of relativity, they basically see an endless war, the forever war, as it were, just slowly destroying, wearing down humanity and being completely pointless. And I feel like you could have similar conclusions, but instead of doing that by going macro, do it by going micro. This guy has to literally live the same bloodshed over and over again. And it just makes him realize like how horrific it is and how, I don't know, how like completely fucked up it is that we have to be shooting each other and things. And so in this case, I guess it's not humans versus humans. It's humans versus aliens. But every time it started to dip its toe there, I wanted even more of it. Well, there's a saying, what if they gave a war and nobody came? Like wars rely on people to fight them. And so there's a long history podcast I listened to on World War One, where they talk about the, you know, all the socialist movements and stuff emerge from the wake of World War One. of, hey, what about if we didn't listen to all the kings and the capitalists telling us it was time to go fight a war and we just put down our guns and walked into no man's land and embraced instead and ignored national boundaries. I guess if they're blender aliens, it's a little bit harder to do, but I'm I'm all in on the sentiment. Yeah, you can't really go play a Christmas soccer game in the trenches with blender aliens. Makes me think of, at the risk of one tangent too many here, makes me think of probably my single favorite podcast episode ever. It's from The Anthropocene Reviewed, which is John Green's essays on various things and then he gives them like a yelp review five star rating but they're mostly just reflections or learning about something but there's one about the song auld lang sign i think i might have even brought this up in a previous episode in the apartment when they listened to auld lang sign but it talks about how in i can't remember if it was world war one or world war two but the british soldiers had a joke where they would sing to the tune of Auld Lang Syne, we're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here, just emphasizing the pointlessness of the war and how it was like a s- violence was self-feeding. And Green is, very to, is able to very poignantly tie that to his reflections on his friend who passed away. And I, I don't know, I was thinking we're here because we're here, as I was watching this movie a little bit. Although, again, if there are blender aliens coming at you, you got to do something. All right. At long last, I am ready to answer the question. Is it good? What about you, Brian? I'm ready. So, Brian, is Edge of Tomorrow 2014 good? Okay. Now, this is a rating I don't give out very often. And that's just because of where... Uh, in a past episode, I I delved into more depth on what each rating means to me. I'm going to give this one a 4 out of 8. A good-ish. This 
usually means something where it has some major strengths, but something's holding it back for me. And in this case, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of time month burnout. I wanted to give it a higher rating because I admire film studios who are willing to throw big budgets at original premises. I'm glad that it wasn't a sequel or a comic book IP movie. But I just feel like I'm not going to remember it. I think the other time loop movies we've experienced will stick in my memory a little bit more. And maybe that's because of the action movie trappings at the end where it turns into a car chase. I don't know exactly what it is. It's just kind of the same bleak color palette throughout. I don't have the memory I don't have the music cues to cling to like in Groundhog Day. So that's where it falls for me. Is it was exciting. I liked seeing the big budget. I just found it a little less memorable than some of the other films we've considered here on the pod. Where does it fall for you, Dan? I can respect that. And to some extent, many components of my reaction were similar to yours. And I tried to displace myself from time loop fatigue when rating this because we've kind of talked around it. How much do we bring in our own personal biases as opposed to trying to give an objective rating of if you were to see it without our specific perspective, what might you think of it? So I didn't really want to penalize it for the fact that it was the 15th time loop movie I've seen in the past month and a half because I did feel like a little bit less excited as the things were happening, the time loop things were happening that I might have otherwise felt. It's kind of hard for me to know for sure, I guess, but I feel like I would have reacted more strongly to this if it was the very first time loop month movie that we spotlighted, for example. But I also, in general, think it's just a really smart blockbuster with good characters. The action is good. I can actually envision the creatures, which sometimes in these movies, they're so vague as to be nothings. I thought it was just exceptionally well made. It didn't get quite over the top enough to be an all-time favorite. I'm going to give it a high, very good six out of eight. I think I think this is an exciting movie, and I do plan to watch it again, and I might even uh, share it with people, especially if a sequel comes out and there's a chance to to watch that too. So um, this one was a, another winner for me. So six out of eight. This is our first time in quite a while where we've disagreed on a rating. We have an we had an odd streak prior to this episode of always giving the same rating. So. I guess we'll see. Was that perhaps the thing that breaks our time loop? Or was it perhaps the main character hooking up with a blonde that ends the time loop month? Uh, I'm going to hand things over to you now, Brian. Yeah, so we had a blonde sort of love interest. Realistically, it was about as tame as the ending of uh, Last Day of Summer when it comes to romantic admissions. Not... You know, it was it was relatively chaste, but it's it served the story well. Going any more than that would have been not in the spirit of what they were going for. 
really, I, I think we could say it was winning the war that broke the time loop here. And I don't really have a good excuse for what's breaking our time loop right now. Uh, maybe it is that disparity in ratings, but I think it's just me being back in the driver's seat. Uh, February is behind us. A new month lies ahead. Uh, governor of Texas is saying we're back on 100% and we'll see what that leads to. But I'm ready to move on. Well, there you go. Time loop month is over. <laughs> I say it is so. But what I've got next on our docket here, as we head into our second batch of 25 films, uh, I don't know what that is symbolic of. We just did our last retrospective, and we're now heading into our next six months. But I wanted to have another chapter of what I called Violent Ends in one of our earliest episodes. This is a double feature where the movies begin very similarly and end vastly differently. The movies I want us to consider are Dead Poet Society from 1989 and School of Rock from 2003. Both feature eccentric teachers taking jobs at prestigious private schools and the parents of the students reacting very differently in the two cases. Oh man, I have not seen School of Rock in years and I've never seen Dead Poet Society and I've been meaning to watch and rewatch respectively these. So I'm, I'm excited to see both of them and also to trace the connections. They may have a little bit more connective tissue than our last pair that we considered. So I look forward to talking about it with you. And listeners, whether or not you're still stuck in a time loop, use your experiences to inform your decisions. Let's uh, try to move forward together. Thanks again for joining. And uh, this is Dan. And this is Brian. And have a good one, listeners. <laughs>